This is a Wild Gate Production Podcast. Welcome to the D&D World. Meet you by the art room door In a circle on the hallway floor I made up a new map last night It's got a dragon and a wizard fight Okay, so Red Mask of Death is, uh, it's not necessarily a siege, but it takes place in, I think I think it's in England, it takes place in a kingdom at least, that is uh, beset by plague, and all of the, no. so spoiler alert here, uh, for a 150 year old poem I guess, um, the nobles in the the kingdom all sequester themselves into a castle and they spend that time telling stories with one another um no sorry not stories it's a ball they're having like a masquerade ball i was thinking canterbury tales for a second um and then death gets in and i think that would be a really interesting D like one setup to be like maybe your poor adventurers have done enough where they won the lottery to like be invited to the masquerade ball while you wait out the siege or mm. plague. You could still just use plague, I guess. Um, and then two, it's like a murder mystery, except it's a supernatural murder mystery. I don't know. Like, I feel like that's a really cool, like the <laughs> villain is death. Like the embodiment of death. That would be a, I don't know. It'd be a dope, uh, <laughs> be a dope adventure. I don't know. But I, I guess this isn't the Edgar Allan Poe podcast. It's actually the Save or Die podcast, a podcast about classic Dungeons and Dragons. I'm one of your hosts, Crispy, an evil acolyte of a god of chaos who has, unknowing to you, uh, led you into the caves of chaos and is about to betray you. (laughs) And I'm Carl. I am Lamunda the Lovely, and I have a dagger in my girdle. And I'm Courtney, and I'm a unicorn who's fierce and elusive. Uh, we are joined by Zach from the Xenopus Archives today. Thank you so much for joining us, Zach. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And it's fitting that we have Zach on the show today because uh, on this episode, we're going to be talking about something he maybe knows like a couple things about. <laughs> uh, I've heard of is, it. <laughs> I, I think it's, I, see, I've never read this book f- before. Is it Holmes? H- Holmes? H- Holme? <laughs> <laughs> Holmes's is <laughs> just pouring some out for my homies. <laughs> Holmes basic Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> but before we get into that, Carl, what have you been doing in gaming lately? Well, um as I've talked about on the show before, I uh run a homeschool gaming group. Uh I homeschool my kids and we get together at a local game store and play board games and some Dungeons and Dragons. And the last time we got together and played Dungeons and Dragons, I uh, did something that I was actually inspired from a game that Courtney and I played in at uh, GaryCon. At GaryCon, we played in a game with Tim Kask, and he had this conceit that once uh, something was accomplished, a portal would open up and we would go into the next area and we'd have to accomplish the task in that area and then another portal would open up and we would go into that area. And it was all 
improv because we wrote down words that he would use in his game. Now, I didn't do that exactly. What I did instead with having these um, kids all trying out Dungeons & Dragons and being relatively new to it, I had them DM a room in a dungeon. And then when we got through that room, a portal would open up at a certain time limit. I'd set a 10 minute timer and it would suck us up into a portal and put us in another room and someone else would take a turn DMing. And uh, it one, it uh, gave them kind of an out because if whatever the room wasn't going well or whatever, just wasn't working out for them. They wanted to be done DMing. They can say, okay, portals open up and you go through and someone else takes over. Uh, but two, it also um, just, I mean, like, no, none of them were really wanting to try to DM except for my son, Connor. Uh, and um, and he actually set the ball rolling. He DM'd one and they saw, well, okay, that I could do that. And so someone else tried it and then someone else tried it. And um, then they came back the next week. We meet once a week and they all were ready to, to start uh, DMing their room. So it was just really cool to see their um, uh, them getting comfortable with this idea of running a game. Yeah, that's really awesome. That's really cool. I'm glad that that game's still going. Courtney, what about you? What have you been doing? We have been playing quite a bit of Dragon Strike around our house um, in small increments <laughs> due to attention spans. Um, but the kids have and gotten into it. And also your VCR. <laughs> well, the uh, cartoon on, I think we watched it on YouTube. Uh, and, and the kids liked it and Carl broke out our Dragon Strike game and we played with them and they had a great time with it. So, you know, flipping over the different maps, playing it that way. So it's been lots of fun. What's been hilarious, Crispy, about the whole thing is Connor at six years old has become so engrossed in this video that he has basically ran us through the adventure on the video repeating the quotes from the dungeon master from the video which is adorable which is fantastic and then he'll look at us expectingly like okay now you say your thing you say what yeah uh, <laughs> we have to say the line from the movie or from the show so, so carnal will be like dexterity die <laughs> no, he'll like wait for you to which one's that so he can go, it's the blue one. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, low-key love Dragon Strike. The the DM, I wish he was my dad. <laughs> like that's, I, that guy is like the DM I aspire to be. There, there's a quote from the movie where the elf says, Stop your petty human bickering. And mm-hmm. my son has been saying this, misquoting it. Stop your human peckering. <laughs> oh, oh. We, might, we might have to censor that. <laughs> this is a family show. <laughs> Connor. Goodness gracious. <laughs> I have not done a lot of D&D for um, jumping to me. Uh, I've not done a lot of D&D lately, uh, but I did buy a copy of Into the Borderlands last night. Uh, I found it at a local game store. And uh, other than that, I've just been I've been crushing it in magic lately. That's <laughs> been like top eighting like all kinds of different local events. It's been great. Um, I do want to 
get the X2 game going again. Uh, I would like to finish that at least, but I am moving soon, so I don't know when that's going to happen. Zach, what have you been doing in gaming? Well, back in March, I went to GaryCon, um, and I was lucky enough to play in Carl's Discos and Dragons game. I, I just dropped in for a little while, but I was able to meet Xenopus, his version. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. Man, that was nerve-wracking. Job. It was nerve-wracking. I couldn't imagine. <laughs> like so I, 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 so I set up Xenopus Tower during that game, thinking they may go to it. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And then uh, they happened to go to it right around the time that Zach... I had sat down to join us, and I was like, oh, goodness, oh, no. <laughs> I got to run Xenopus for Xenopus. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> I also, I have a local group also that I'm um, part of, and uh, so we generally play about every other week. We have two <laughs> different regular games going on there. There's a Menzo Branson game, the, the City of the Drow, where we're all uh, surface dwellers that have been captured and working our way up the ranks of the Drow society. Mostly so I did, fighting. I know it's wrong, but okay. So Zach, you have to know something about me. Um, from ages like 15 to 23, I was a huge like Legend of Drist fan. Like I read all of them hmm. and had all of them in hardback and... I did that terrible nerd thing that people do when you said Menzo Branson, where I went, uh, it's actually pronounced Menzo Berenson. And I just need you to know that I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea how it's correctly pronounced. <laughs> well, it's I mean, Menzo Berenson, which really I think is dumb, it. because I've also always said Menzo Branson, but my, like, I had that weird visceral nerd reaction where it's like, I know a thing that you don't. Eh. So I, I just, I'm sorry for being uh, that kind of person. And nobody would have known. Told us all. <laughs> One reason I enjoy it because I know almost nothing about the setting. Do you have the? Is are you running the second edition box set? Yes, that's what our dungeon master is using. Yeah, I'm just a player in it. That's all you, you know, need. We also that. have a regular Stonehell game. Oh, I I own a copy of Stonehell. I've been wanting to run that. So our DM in that, he's been running it for 10 years, and he he, he uses it with different groups. He'll bring it to conventions. He's mm. had different regular groups with it. And anybody can go into it, and they can change the dungeon, and then what, however it changes, it affects the next group. Oh, that's awesome. That's really, that's super cool. So, Zachary, are you usually a DM or usually a player? I'm usually a player in the group of adults, and then I, I run games for my kids and their cousins periodically hmm. when we're all together i'd like to do more dming with our group but we we're sort of a group of dms mm-hmm. yeah that's difficult do you do the uh mean girl thing that carl and i do where you judge everyone's dming ability when you're in the <laughs> game? no i'm just happy to have somebody else do the heavy lifting do you guys get to play a lot of osr games or is it mostly like i obviously you're playing second edition or some iteration of that but do you guys typically stick to old school games well the stonehell game is old school Mm -hmm. it's using bx and uh the other one's second edition and before that we played in like a seven and a half year um temple of elemental evil campaign that was mostly second edition Mm -hmm. it's just based on the the guys in the group whatever they're uh used to running okay 
All right, so shall we jump in to today's topic? Holmes Dungeons and Dragons, the original version of basic D&D. That's what I'm here for. Carl had some some stuff. (laughs) Yeah, right off the bat, I want to talk about that, how it's, you know, the the thing about Holmes Basic, to me, is it's kind of the eye of the hurricane of Dungeons & Dragons because it's right at this center where it is all of these things. It is a reorganization and simplification of OD&D. It is this first product entry concept into advanced D&D. And then on top of that, it sets the mold of what every basic D&D set going forward will be like. Um, and that's just incredible to me that it's kind of this this epicenter of all things Dungeons & Dragons lands right here in 1977 with the Holmes basic box set. Well said. I don't think I could put it better than that. The other thing I find so great about Holmes Basic and one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it on the show is I feel like in a lot of ways, John Eric Holmes is kind of the patron saint of the OSR. This is someone who was a fan that saw something they loved and wanted to be involved and, you know, reiterated and and simplified and restructured this thing that they loved so other people would have an easier time enjoying it. So essentially what you're saying is that Holmes D&D is the first retro clone. (laughs) (laughs) That is the argument I kind of just made. I think, I think, I think the spirit is the same. I -hmm. think the, you know, that, that drive is the same as somebody who, I mean, I mean, anybody who makes a game is making it because they want people to play it and enjoy it. But I think there's that spirit of just seeing this thing that they want other people to have an easier time enjoying and uh, taking steps to make that happen. Yes. And he was he was really, I think, inspired by... There was a local group where he was that put out an earlier set of like their improved D&D called mm-hmm. Warlock. And that was what he and his sons learned to play with um, because the original rules were hard to understand. And I think he saw what they did and you know that kind of inspired him to contact TSR. Mm-hmm. Because he saw that there could be a, an improvement to the rules, at least their clarity. So I've owned Holmes uh, basically since I started playing D&D. So for the whole time I've played D&D, I've, I've owned Holmes. And I used to read it and reread it all the time. And I super loved it. It was my like first basic game. And I haven't read it for a few years. And I just forgot how enjoyable of a read it is. Oh, certainly. I agree. I mean that's how I got all started. So I know I know we had given um the all new easy to master D&D a really high rating as like this is the best intro version to D&D. I don't know if that's true. I actually think Holmes is it's a like just a great introduction to the game. I think um where where Holmes excels is that it gives you enough information to hit the ground running but enough freedom to not be constrained by these kind of thoughts and ideas that are more solidified in later versions of the games. You know, obviously BX uh, is, is more structured than Holmes and then Beck B is more structured than BX and so on and so on. Uh, Holmes still has a lot of that original D and D 
concept where in BX you might say, this is my house rule for this, where in Holmes or OD&D you would say, this is how I handle this, because there isn't a rule to house rule. You just got to handle things the way you would handle them as a DM adjudicator. Yeah, one one big area is in combat, there's no real order of combat like there is in the later basics. It's just some that guidance really, about how it should happen. That really struck me by surprise rereading it because I had always thought that there was a Holmes order of combat and nope, it's not even there. Yeah, he just mentions a few things like spells should go off first, but there's no real like it has to be this way. Like always do it in this order. Yeah, it really does follow sort of like all right, well, logically, if they're far enough away for you to shoot arrows at them, that's what you'll do. And then when they get close, you can't anymore because right. you might hit your buddy. What if we all talked about just real quickly our experiences with Holmes Basic? Is that something we'd want to do? Yeah. yeah. Sure. Like games we've played? Yeah, stuff like that. Okay. Is, it, is that that's cool? That's fine. It requires me to remember things. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, um, I mean, I'll, I'll I mean, I. I remember playing in Zach's game, sitting next to Chris Holmes, which was awesome. Yeah, but... that's cool. Yeah, that was epic. That was a fun game. I played a dwarf. We'll talk about that a little bit. <laughs> Crispy, why don't you start? Because uh, you have kind of a... I have the least experience with Holmes, I think, like actually playing it. Uh, well, running it, really. Uh, so mine will be kind of short. Uh, I first found Holmes... It was 2002, I want to say. I'm pretty sure. Uh, and there was this used bookstore behind the apartment complex I lived in. And that's where I got all of my D&D stuff. I was basically buying anything with Dungeons and Dragons in the title. Um, so, like, I, I had a very big mismatch. Um, mm -hmm. And it, I wouldn't actually run Holmes. I, I would read it and read it and read it. And I, I really liked it. And I loved all the weird, quirky art. Like, uh, my favorite piece of art is the the wizard who's coming around a corner running into, I think it's a group of kobolds? I think they're gnolls. supposed to be gnolls. Are they gnolls? Um, I guess it's not that big of an impression on me. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't actually get to run it for like six years. And uh, oh. Holmes is actually that version or that game that I ran. I ran Keep on the Borderlands for a bunch of friends. Uh, I finally peer pressured them into letting me run basic D&D. After years, and we were playing uh, Keep on the Borderlands, and combat was like just super boring because I, I don't know why. So I started narrating more like visceral combat, and that's stuck with me ever since. Uh, I mm. also, uh, this is my first time getting to run hirelings, and that was super fun. Like, I came up with like this list of grimdark hirelings that <laughs> was like one of the best things I've ever done. Also, was the genesis of me loving uh, single D6 uh, weapon damage. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I actually, uh, so I knew about Holmes and I was really big into the history of the game and I was I was reading about it, but I had never really thought to um, run it or, or um, really dive deep into the book until listening to this show uh, with former hosts who kind of harped on how great of a product it was. And um, that led me to Zach's blog and reading about it. And uh, uh, then just kind of cover to cover reading the book. And from there, now I run it at conventions uh, with discos and dragons, which is just Holmes basic and seventies dice and miniatures. Uh, and it, 
to me, it's just one of the most interesting um, products historically uh, for the game. I mean, I don't know that your blog, Zach, could be about BX and be as rich and interesting as it is. Even though I like BX a whole lot, I think there's less historically interesting about BX than there is Holmes, basic. Uh, I agree. My experience with playing Holmes, besides Carl's Disco's game, is I played in a game that Zach ran called Return to Xenopus at Norxus uh, RPG Con, sitting next to Chris Holmes, and it was... Um, Basically, we went back to the towers in a years, years, years later, and kind of got to explore it and um, see what changes or if any changes had happened with the dungeon and the art itself. And it was a lot of fun and very interesting things that Zach kept and the things that he changed about the map and the dungeon exploration. So it was awesome. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. So yeah. I started with uh, Homes Basic. It was my first D&D set. I got it. 1982, I think, for my birthday. Couldn't make heads or tails of it. My, I had the version that came with chits instead of dice, so they had these little pieces of paper that were numbered, you know, one to four, one to six, and you were supposed to use those, pull them out of a bag or a cup instead of rolling dice. But I was young, and I didn't, I had no idea what to do with them. But, you know, eventually, I found a set of dice, learned how to play from some other kids, and uh, quickly moved on to advanced D&D, which is what I played during most of the 80s. But I always remembered the basic set rulebook, especially the sample dungeon in the back, which I thought had a great story behind it, the intro part with the wizard Xenopus. Mm-hmm. So at some point in the, in the 2000s, I found out that Holmes had actually written fiction, and I read his novel that he wrote, his D&D novel, The Maze of Peril, and I noticed that there were similarities between it and the sample dungeon and that's sort of what got me started looking into his role in creating basic D and eventually that led to starting the blog so that's that's sort of my background and how i got started in all of this hmm. it also got me back into playing D too because i wasn't playing at the time but I, I joined a local group and then i've been i've been with them now for like nine years i think dang that's awesome so i have a quick question because as Carl said, we did have a couple hosts previously who super love Holmes. They they stick up for it all the time. You know, they they have kind of a similar memory where it was one of their actually I think it's both of their first sets. And um I don't know why I'm being so vague. It's the Stewarts. Like I don't know why <laughs> <Yes. I'm... laughs> I was previously on Saber Die with them. <laughs> yeah, I I don't like people know who we're talking about. People <laughs> listen to the show. Um so the Stewarts love Holmes. Uh, and I myself, like, I like Holmes a lot, but it's not my preferred version. I don't think it doesn't do what I need, which would be, a, you know, a longer term game. Um, so why Holmes? Like, what what has uh, has stuck with you for so long? Is it just a nostalgia thing? Is it is there something Holmes D&D is doing that other versions aren't? Yeah, that's a tough question. I don't know. Um I mean, you kind of need an intro for whatever rule set you're starting with. So it's a good mm-hmm. intro if you're using, you know, I, I tend to fill in the higher levels with original D&D now. So if you're doing that, it's still a good intro for that because it's completely compatible with it. Hmm. What about you, Carl? <laughs> Why Holmes for you? 
Well, I mean, I, I pretty much the exact same answer. I, I consider, so like I said, Holmes is this epicenter and it goes in all these different threads and it's kind of the start of basic and it's the beginning of advanced, introduction to advanced. It's the structure of later D&D products. But I do consider Holmes an OD&D product. And so the way I would use Holmes for a long-term game is sort of sitting that race as class, which is vastly my preference, system into OD&D and then using OD&D to extrapolate and expand maybe just even the three little brown books in Holmes and you can kind of work out the thief stuff if you need to without adding Greyhawk to it Mm -hmm. now Carl are you saying that Holmes has racist class I am saying he lays the groundwork for it to be more solidified later I'm saying I would use it in OD&D to provide that groundwork because it's my preference preferred style of play. So I don't I I guess I don't see the other side of this argument that Holmes doesn't have racist class because like <laughs> it's obvious like what we know as racist class it it does set the groundwork and it's like well if you're reading this from like a more modern or like a later interpretation it's definitely the same rules as as races class for elves and dwarves and halflings. I know well, it says way, that I they're mean, fighters, and then he, it mentions that AD and D has special rules for thieves, like dwarven thieves. And yeah, that's thieves. the thing that breaks the tie. Like you know, he he gives this clue that like you know they don't have to be fighters. And, and the, he was really just following the the original D and D rules, which mm-hmm. only allowed dwarves and hobbits as they were called then to be fighters but my contention is is that he specifically lays the groundwork that elves are both simultaneously not in the uh, the OD&D interpretation where you choose between adventures um yeah now in the manuscript uh he had that a little bit different so it was really that when TSR got it and they edited it that they they made it clear for the first time. Oh, that's interesting. Hmm. What does it say in the manuscript if you can paraphrase? I have it here. Let me open it up. That is handy. I was not expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> or I was going well, to... I have, have it here it. on my computer. Elves must decide before an adventure begins, however, whether they are going to act as a fighting man, in which case they can wear armor but cannot throw spells, or assume the role of a magic user, gaining the use of spells but forfeiting weapons other than the dagger. For each adventure, the elf can change his role, but once the adventure starts, he must not change. Hmm. That's uh, very and, interesting. And, and, well, the other was just presenting what he had read in the original D&D rules. Another difference that keeps it from being completely racist class is dwarves do not have their own XP track. They level as fighters. Yes. So they're... All right, I they're... guess. <laughs> <laughs> you can see it both ways. So obviously, like... Holmes presenting it this way then is perhaps why, like, when Tom Moldvay went to work on the basic set, he was like, well, let's just take out any, you know, idea that they can be anything other than just... Well, I mean, there is know, a passage in, in Holmes that says that elves do operate as both simultaneously. It's like at the end of the set, at least in my gobby. And I, I'm paraphrasing, I don't have the exact wording, but... It, it's very close to that. It's not verbatim, but it's super close. Um, that's interesting that initially they just worked like OD&D elves. 
Yeah, when and he prepared also, the manuscript, that was what he was going by, and yeah, left that in there. And then, but I think at TSR they already had this idea I that th- um, you I, know they were going to be like a double classed character. Yeah, I wonder if it's emulating the multi class rules from AD and D that they were developing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, some of that was already presented in Greyhawk, the Greyhawk supplement. Okay, yeah. So there, you know, there hmm. were sort of two ideas already out there. Do you know if in the manuscript, so this is getting real deep, this is a real deep dive, in the manuscript version, does it classify the adventure as a day? Because it seems from my reading, my interpretation of my reading is that um, an adventure is just a day. So it's not, you know, it's not like a big quest. It's more an expedition into the adventure site. Um, Because specifically in the magic user section, uh, talking about spell books, you know, when the magic user, quote, goes home for the day, that's when they can memorize their rememorize their spells. And so I wonder if in the manuscript version, if the interpretation uh, of adventure is day to day. Yeah, I don't think that magic spell section was changed very much. I can't remember for sure, but there may have been a few slight changes in that section, but I don't think it was changed significantly. I think there is a certain amount of expectation with old school D&D, especially in the very early years, that you kind of got together with your your buds and played D&D for a little bit. And at the end, no matter what conceit you had to make to get them there, they ended up back at the safe haven, whether it was a high level, you know, magic user wandering through the same dungeon and says, boom, I'll send you back or whatever. Um, just to get them where they needed to be. So it, it really wasn't something like, you know, later D&D where you would keep track of each day and... Yeah, and then resting in a dungeon right. night becomes a thing. Which I... I don't remember where I read this. It may be in OD&D itself, but there is, like, a conceit of, like, oh, you don't, you don't rest in the dungeon. If you guys are done playing for that session you somehow make it home and start in town. Maybe that's in a blog. I can't remember, but I, <laughs> I, I know of that interpretation as well. I'm familiar. Well, I, I believe that Gary Gygax always did that in his early games. He would always have them get back so they didn't leave people in the dungeon from session to session because they would have different players coming in each right. time. Yeah. Now, Holmes does, in the, um, in the later part of the rulebook, he does mention that you can suspend time and... Just stop wherever you are and then restart at that position in the dungeon. Yeah, I. He just I he sort that. of presents it's... it as an option, like in the part right before the example of play. It's my least thing. It's my least favorite part of of how D and D's played, where it's just like I talk about this all the time. Everyone's everyone's on the world's longest camping trip. <laughs> it's it bugs although he's not actually talking about camping there. He's talking about just freezing time and just saying okay. You know, picking you're up, about yeah. to open that door. We'll continue that next time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, what I'm trying to say is, I think whether it's day or adventure for old school D and D kind of means the same thing. Yeah, and that's what my initial question was: is is in the manuscript because Holmes very much in the earlier parts of the book details like an adventure as basically a day. You know, it's like a day trip to the caves of chaos, and then. You get your stuff and you finish and you go home for supper. Yeah, uh, and the, then the, the oh, biggest limitation is that the he says that the magic users cannot bring their spell books to the dungeon, mm-hmm. so they're only going to have the spells for one day. Yeah, and then 
they go home and and then you can get resting done you know for each full day at home quote unquote uh, and i do believe it's literally in quotes in the book you gain you know one to three uh one thing that i liked in holmes just more things i observed uh that i was like ah yeah this is real good um was and i've always used this as a house rule but i know it's specifically not in bx is that elves get the one and two chance to spot secret doors just by passing and then when they're actively looking they get a one to four in six chance to act to find them oh yeah that, I I love that rule. Uh, I've always loved that rule. And uh, when I was getting more into BX, I was like, "Why isn't this in here? This like it's really great." Yeah, I actually forgot that it wasn't in the later mm-hmm. basic rules until recently. I was when I we I think we were playing our Stonehell game. I was looking at the rule book. Yeah, it's cool. You can also use it for other stuff too. Like if there's something that besides a secret door, just let give the alpha one and two chance of noticing it if there's something hidden in the room. Yeah, I, I love that. They mentioned doing that in the sample dungeon, uh, rolling a, a one to two kind of a spot check, a perception check for an elf or a dwarf. And nobody else gets the chance, but the elf or dwarf may see something in the sample dungeon that the other ones don't. Yeah, yeah great point. I want to ask about the chits, because I, I've i always grown up where you know game stores have a display of like chess X dice and a display of loose dice where you can mix and match and annoy them by rolling them on the gl- the glass to see which ones are the best. Um, <laughs> but like, w- were the chits different color? How do you tell the chits apart? I've actually never seen Holmes chits. I have a copy of the rule book right here with chits in it, still attached. They were different colors, though. They were. It, it's funny. They're kind of like the cover of the of the blue rule book. Mm-hmm. They're black and white there's two sets of one to 20 that are one sets white one sets black and then one to eight are also black and then the other ones are all shades of blue or one to t- one of the sets of one to ten is gray hmm. so it's sort of that same blue monochrome yeah because like i i guess in my head i've always thought that you just put all of the chits in a yahtzee cup and then <laughs> take it out of there it's like well what if you are rolling a d6 and you get a 20, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> no, they're really unwieldy because you would need a separate cup, really, for each For each one, set. yeah. Yeah. I remember having mine all cut up in, like, a like a little plastic baggie, and it was, you know, it's just a mess because if you did that, you had to sort them all out then before you started playing. Yeah, I guess you could do multiple sandwich baggies and get some, like, Rust-Oleum TM and spray paint them different colors. Like the bags, not the chits themselves. The other thing that's kind of odd about the chits is they do not have markers on them for what is a six or a nine. There's no underline or dot at the bottom. So you have to flip it over to the back and know how it should line up with the information on the back, which shows you like a one through four or one through six, depending on which chit you're pulling. And you mean one? You mean one through ten or one through twenty? Because there's not going to be a nine on the one through four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, Courtney. <laughs> Counting is hard. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly that. Yeah, well, I mean, but they're all aligned the same way. So one through four through one through twenty, they determine the facing of the number on the other side, and that's the only way to tell the difference between a six and a nine on the chits. It must have sucked to play the D and D set without dice. How do you get anything done? Yeah, when I actually learned how to play from these neighbors of mine, I don't even remember using dice. We just had characters, and the DM was just like you know basically narrating a story and that we were making choices and stuff like that. Yeah, I have the same thing. When I was first learning how to play D&D, there was no such thing as a D20. We did everything on 2D6. And, like, it was just like a... Yeah, that's probably high enough to do it. Uh, you succeed. <laughs> it was all. It was very much done by feel. Which I miss, actually. That was the best way to play D&D. <laughs> So now that we've covered chits, I, I don't like saying that word. I don't know why. It just, it's a little bit awkward. Right. So, yeah. I, I started a hashtag on Twitter recently called Chitstorm. Oh, my goodness. Um, I know, Carl, you, you kind of provided us with some notes here. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about just some of the weird rules that are in homes and nowhere else <laughs> that don't really appear in later versions of or earlier versions of the game. But for some reason, they land squarely in homes. Here's uh, one that is automatically disqualified. The great weapon versus dagger uh, rule. Oh, yeah. Because that does exist. I know we've talked about this before, but that's actually a it has to do with weapon classes from chainmail. So everyone asks us about oh, what do you guys think? Isn't it weird that if you have a great sword, you only get to attack once every other turn? But a dagger would go four times by that time. So why would you choose any other weapon? And it's it's just, it's a it's disqualified. It's a weird holdover from chainmail. Well, uh, you know, and actually, when we uh, when I talked to to Chris Holmes about this rule, um, he, he he said that they developed their own house rules for what the dagger does versus what a great weapon would do. And the great weapon in their game actually does three d six of damage, um, which is a lot. But that would kind of explain why it has that slower rate of fire so it may have its origins in there um the 3d6 for damage probably has its origins in greyhawk damage versus large creatures um hmm. so uh you know possibly it, there there's also the warlock supplement that i mentioned earlier that was mm -hmm. developed at caltech um all the weapons in there to d6 but they would use multiple d6 for the oh okay uh, larger weapons so Holmes may have gotten that from there it's it it's sort of complicated because there's stuff from chainmail about where you know the w weapons can get multiple blows based on the if their weapon length mm -hmm. and then there's the greyhawk variable weapon damage and then there's the warlock supplement and i'm not sure which exactly holmes was drawing on and then there's also what he had in the manuscript is different from what was actually published hmm. in the manuscript he ha actually had all regular weapons like long swords getting two attacks per round. Oh wow. Um, oh, interesting. And that That's... was it wasn't just daggers, it was swords too. And and his example of combat actually shows that very clearly. In, in the, the manuscript. manuscript or in the whole Okay. So not in, in the, the manuscript. Manuscript. And then TSR went and edited it and while they were doing that they changed it 
to the the famous you know the daggers get two attacks per round um, so his his version was still not balanced because the two-handed weapons only got one attack per round yeah but if i could do 18 damage with that <laughs> one attack i'm okay with that well yeah except that it that wasn't mentioned in the rule book or in, yeah. in the manuscript so the plot thickens i guess but I, I don't know i feel like that's the easy like that's the easy weird rules variation that you could call upon mm-hmm. and it's just like everyone knows about it like <laughs> it's easy to ignore a rule to ignore it's like mm-hmm. one sentence in there so just pretend um, it doesn't exist <laughs> One thing that I, I I don't know this one I think is by now also kind of bush league trivia is uh, the the rules for magic missile where you actually have to roll it it's literally a magic missile so like a like an arrow you you roll you know to hit and it does a d6 plus one like a magic arrow yes yeah optionally you can give it a plus one to hit if if that's how you interpret the it to be like a magic arrow. Yeah, that's this is the only rule set where it really clearly says that. Now, Tim Kask has said that they that's how they played in original D anD D, but the original D anD D rules aren't really clear that a two hit roll is required. Yeah. There's well, some gonna... evidence in some other, like the Monster Manual mentions that, um, a magic missile like striking at plus two, so that would imply that there's a was a roll required. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Holmes is really the only rule set where we have that actually written down. Like, definitely do it this way. Yeah, well, in in later versions, uh, there was a topic on Dragon's Foot about this recent-ishly, uh, where people are like, "Oh, hey, what's why is there a duration next to Magic Missile? Why does it last for a turn?" Um, and so people had discussed that, where it's like, "Oh no, it like creates a Magic Missile. It doesn't fire right away. You get to fire it off whenever you choose, so you can cast it, then go into battle and use it." Um, yeah, that's is, a cool. That's a cool way to work with that. Yeah, um, in Hol- in Holmes, there's no duration listed. Yeah, there is no duration, which I think is interesting. Um, what are some other uh, Carl? What are some other cool, weird rules variations? Uh, I believe it's the only uh, rule set that has the presence of the parry. Mm, it might be in Greyhawk as well, but it, for the basic rules, yes. Yeah, there's a parry and chainmail, which is pro- probably where he got the idea from. Got it. Okay. Um, but it, you know, there's no d20 roll in chainmail, so he had to come up with a way to implement that. So he gives like a minus two, I believe, if you say you're going to parry for the for your opponent to hit you. And mm-hmm. then the coolest thing is that like the if they get the exact number to hit them, their weapon breaks instead of hitting you. Mm-hmm. No, the parrying weapon breaks. I always get that backwards. So you oh, you, don't, you don't take damage, your... but you lose your weapon. Okay, yeah, I okay, I, I have been reading that correctly. Then mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, oh, their weapon breaks, uh, but I had previously always read it as your weapon breaks. If yeah, you no, it says that exactly. very clearly. I don't know how I feel about that rule. I don't. Know, I like it. I th- I think it's an interesting concept. I don't know if I like the execution. Um, what was another one? Oh. I didn't get a chance to fact check this, and Carl, you might be able to help me out, but uh, the rules for Dancing Lights was that it specifically mimics the torches of an adventuring party. I don't remember ever reading that in Dancing Lights before, but I may be wrong. 
And I don't have my copy of BX Essentials or BX handy. I think it's something that changed. I think that's pretty similar to the OD&D spell. Yeah, like, and you could send them like 120 feet ahead so you can like, you know, it could be a trap. For If you were going to ambush somebody, you could send them ahead so they thought like mm-hmm. somebody was coming. Yeah, same yeah. with auditory hallucination, which is not something I've ever seen in another version of D&D that I can recall. And the uh, the amount of noise you can make is based on your level. Yeah. Now, some that's one of the new spells, I believe, that was added mm-hmm. uh, by Gygax. Oh, so okay. there were a few spells that made their debut in Holmes Basic. They weren't in OD&D. They weren't in the Greyhawk supplement. Uh, and then Holmes didn't have them in the manuscript. But when Gygax was fixing it up, he added a few of the new spells that he was coming up with for advanced D&D. They generally have longer descriptions. But they're not always the same as, as what actually appeared then in the player's handbook. So they may have come from an in, intermediate version. Huh. Interesting. Uh, any other examples you can give us for those? Uh, enlargement was a new spell. Uh, Ray of Enfeeblement was a new one. Oh, I didn't know Ray of Enfeeblement made its debut in Holmes. Oh, uh, weird rule, rule variant. It's something that exists in other versions. Um, I thought it was interesting that uh, there's different scales for ability score cash-ins. So you can, depending on your prime requisite or the stat that you're wanting to trade into, it's either a 2-to-1 or a 3-to-1 trade-in. So, like, wizards can get more intelligence, but it's at a higher cost. Or And, you know, fighters and clerics can get higher strength or wisdom at a lower cost. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I believe those are are directly from the original booklets. I yeah. believe they simplify it later in in BX to be just a two to one. Uh, I think it's yeah. pretty similar. Um, uh, the OD and D stating of it is kind of confusing, and it, and it it's so confusing that it would be easy enough to not think it's there uh, because yeah. Uh, it it says it in a way that doesn't seem like you're actually changing the stats. It almost says like you can use wisdom for strength on a two to one basis or something, and it sounds almost like you're rolling against stats that you're not rolling against. It's really bizarrely stated. Um, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, if, if you read that in the original booklet, it looks like you're just doing it in order to get the XP bonus, but not actually changing the stat. Whereas Holmes left that out, so it. It, in Holmes, it's like you're actually changing the stat, which then they carried forward into uh, BX, I believe. Yeah, it's in BX for sure. So he was sort of responsible for dropping out that part. Hmm. Because even in the Greyhawk supplement, like when it when it introduces all those new uh, strength bonuses, it says it must be the raw strength score, not the adjusted score. You're not going to get that 18-0-0 strength if you up your strength use it by by lowering your intelligence. Recently was my first time to read through the all of Holmes. I am, as most of you guys know, typically a player and not a DM, so I just play whatever version other people want to DM for me. So I read through the whole Holmes book, and in it has a list of monsters. And so I was want to talk about our favorite monsters in the Holmes book. And my favorite monster in the Holmes book is the black pudding. Who doesn't <laughs> want to fight the black pudding? Delicious. 
I know. Like, I feel like maybe he was just, like, eating some chocolate pudding and was like, this could be a monster. <laughs> um, so, um, I also think it's hilarious that the black pudding is always hungry. <laughs> 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 so, um, so, anyways, I, I've never played in a game where I've had to fight black pudding. Yeah, I think they're underused because they have such high hit dice. Yeah, there's there's actually uh, one in the Discos and Dragons game that nobody's ever got to. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of stuff in the Discos and Dragons game that nobody's ever got to. I think the Black Pudding, I mean, maybe I'm assuming here, but I, I would imagine it's kind of based on The Blob, uh, the old 50s movie. Oh, oh definitely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the in the description, it's referred to as a blob, so. Mm. Oh, yeah, hey, look at that. I'll, I'll say this about the monster section, and um, there's there's very little to know, and, and in the entirety of Holmes, there's very little to know masking the Tolkien influence on Dungeons and Dragons. So, like when it talks about the white, it says Barrow Whites, as per Tolkien, are nasty, nearly immaterial creatures, and uh, there's even a section in Holmes where it says. Um, it says the imaginary universe of Dungeons and Dragons obviously lies not too far from the Middle Earth of J.R.R. Tolkien's great <laughs> Lord of the Rings trilogy. <laughs> so it's yeah, oh, that's interesting. That, yeah, I, I believe put it. that in there. Gygax didn't take it out I, because you know at this point they it, this was a, before they took the Tolkien references out of the earlier books. So the Holmes Basic Rulebook was the last one where they had those Tolkien references in there. And what is it up to the third printing where they still have halflings and listed as hobbits in original D and D or, or in homes in homes. I think in the second printing, they took out some of them and then they're mostly out by the third printing. And then there's a second edition. There was always one stray reference to a hobbit in there. So although in homes, all they did was change halfling to hobbit. They didn't take out the other Tolkien references. There's still a reference, like Carl mentioned. Yeah, to the whites as Barrow Whites. Yes, that was never taken out. There's two references to Balrogs that were never taken out. Yeah, and uh, Ray. Whereas when they w- they went to the original D and D books, they were more careful and they took out most of the references, like all of the references to Balrogs and mm-hmm. etc. So somehow Holmes kept in some of these things. So when I read this when I was a kid, I saw Tolkien references in there. Yeah, and, and there's also in the Spectre, it talks about the Nazgul of Tolkien fall into this category. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of uh, a Tolkien in the monster list and in the whole book, but in the monster list. But as far as like my favorite monster um, from the Holmes book, uh, you know, I think it's uh, obviously these these are monsters that kind of repeat. But just the monster list as a whole, I feel like. It is exactly what I want from a D&D monster list. It is so complete and uh, full of options for Dungeons and Dragons uh, without kind of losing the plot with some of the more out there, more uh, Barosian monsters I don't typically use in my Dungeons and Dragons game, uh, which is funny to say because there's plenty of... of, uh, reason to but i mean it's just not something that i i've done personally so i don't miss stuff like neanderthals and rock baboons and giant shrews uh that don't really make white apes right um that don't appear in homes that do appear in later versions of basic D. &D. Hmm. i 
didn't know we were going to do this. So <laughs> when I was reading, I skipped over the monster section because I was like, it's, you know, it's monsters. I've read, I've read a D and D book before. So, uh, Zach, how about you? What's your favorite monster? <laughs> the purple worm. Oh yeah. I thought it was interesting that in the, uh, in one of the examples of play that he did bring up the purple worm. And I was like, that's, this, this only goes to the third level. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes people complain about that. It's like as if it's a flaw in, in the basic rules that they only go to third level. That he has these monsters in there, but he he's he's he wrote about this a little bit in some of the articles that he wrote about working on the game. He wanted to preserve the flavor of the original game, so he was trying to show all of the interesting monsters that had been included, and then he also you know. He kept dragons in there because the, it, it's in the name of the game. You can't really have Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> and not have dragons. Mm-hmm. So even though they're, for the most part, you know, out of the range of first to third level characters, though you could include one that was younger, perhaps. So is it the same types in his manuscript? Is it white, black, red, and brass in the manuscript? There's one difference, I believe. I think the brass dragon. Interesting. Yeah, I think I think including high level monsters in in uh, low level dungeons can be a lot of fun, and it just becomes the the part of that dungeon uh, with that monster is the part you avoid or try to get around, and you know and that becomes part of the puzzle. You can't fight your way through this, but can you figure out a way to avoid it or a way to possibly even use it to your advantage? You know, um, uh, in his. Um, book in in, uh, Maze of Peril there is a purple worm. Yeah, and that was on the the first level of the dungeon. Right. And that was based on an actual dungeon that he ran and it had the purple worm there. Huh. Now in the Holmes actually addresses the the idea of the high level monster in the intro to the monster section. He must have anticipated this. (laughs) (laughs) This 40 year later (laughs) conversation. Smart guy. Yeah, absolutely. So what he, what he wrote here is if one wanted to use a red dragon, for instance, in a campaign with low-level characters, the dragon could be scaled down. So that's, you know, pretty easy. Maybe it ran into a high-level magic user and it was partially shrunk by a magic spell, reducing its hit points. Or there might be a magic sword effective only against this dragon hidden in the dungeon. And adventurers are given a hint or legend that might lead them to it. Hmm. But then he writes it should have less treasure. I don't know how many, how many uh, D&D dungeon masters actually took that advice, though. That's a cool idea, though, of it just being a, a angry shrunk dragon. <laughs> I like that idea. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to like a young, like a baby dragon, because there's nothing cool about fighting a baby dragon, but a really mean shrunk dragon with a Napoleon complex sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. And then in the when they published that section, they changed the dragon to a chimera. I don't know why. Oh, yeah. I've wanted to use a chimera, for instance. Interesting. That is interesting. <laughs> I guess they didn't. TSR didn't want their dragon shrunk down. I think it probably got changed because there are rules within the rulebook for scaling dragons. You know, uh, already uh, the yeah, dragons do point. come in different sizes, so it probably got changed to Chimera just to not have this kind of double mechanic presented for doing that. Um, and then I think the last thing I have here to talk about is the sample dungeon, which I think warrants lots of discussion. Oh yeah. It's my favorite part of the rule book. You know, I've owned this book for like 
16 years, never read the sample dungeon. Even uh, now, you've still not weird. read it? I you skipped it for today. I was trying to get all the like <laughs> little rules pieces. Oh, the like, ah, sample dungeon. Yeah, it's fine. So if well, you skipped the sample dungeon and the monsters, what did you read? I read the rules and the spells <laughs> and character creation and the equipment and adventuring. Uh-huh. Uh, funny enough, uh, Holmes is the first edition where they scaled down the movement speed because uh, originally in D&D, in original D&D, you make two movements at 120 feet per turn. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you're yeah, missing out. Yeah. You should read the sample dungeon. I figured you would run the sample dungeon for the AP part. Like, that was my anticipation. So I was like, I don't want to spoil this for myself. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about the sample dungeon. Uh, the uh, Holmes Basic, like many of the basic D&D products, and uh, from here on out, uh, uh, D&D products have had sample dungeons that have come with them. And... I would say Holmes is possibly the most robust of any of them. I would agree. The The intro to it is almost like a pastiche of a Lovecraft or Howard story. Mm-hmm. Holmes was a big fan of... He'd been reading like Lovecraft since he was a teenager in the 1940s, and um, he read all sorts of stories in pulp magazines at that time. So the the background here is almost drawn from typical kind of story involving a mysterious wizard. And it really, you know, it sets the stage for the sample dungeon. Just, you know, and he does it all in like just, what, six paragraphs? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's this evil thing that has fallen but still has left its mark on the world that's very uh, evocative. And then uh, the dungeon itself, what makes it so robust compared to other sample dungeons is it's not really um, a collection. It's not a monster zoo, even though it kind of is. Uh, But it's not a a monster zoo in the fact that it's not just slogging your way through combat. It's a lot of exploration and a lot of different environments to interact with. Uh, Because in this dungeon, you have... Uh, underground rivers and a beach and a tower and uh, rat warrens you know and there's crypts and there's there's all these different environments within this one dungeon to interact with and you do have to interact with them in different ways there's places where uh, dwarves and halflings can move freely while everyone else would have to crawl and there's uh, places that call out the ability of elves and dwarves to kind of have an advantage in seeing hidden things over other classes um and you know it's just something that kind of gives you this full D experience in this small little sample yeah and he also includes several monsters that are not in the monster list which is kind of showing you <laughs> showing you that you can create your own mm-hmm. pretty easily and just add them in the adventure you don't have to stick to what's in the monster list so should we have declared spoiler alert for a book that was written in 1974? <laughs> Stop now if you don't want to know what the what goes on in the dungeon. <laughs> um, I like that uh, the sample dungeon um, is explained in a way that I feel like even me as a non-DMer type person, I mean, I might not be as fluid or as creative or as smooth with my presentation, but I feel like even with the descriptions that are given... 
it would do what's intended for is help a beginner player or beginner DM play a game with their friends and, and, and use the descriptions. And then as you get better, you could use the same map and create your own uh, encounters within the different rooms. So I, I think the layout uh, and the descriptions of the rooms is uh, great to help you play with the whole point. Oh, I agree. He, and he doesn't, they're not too long either, which is great. There's not that much to read for each room. But he does a good job of setting each one up. And it's extremely non-linear. You can really explore this dungeon. You're not kind of taken by the hand room to room and you're 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 dictated in the direction you're gonna go. It's really a dungeon to explore. Yeah, and you can even leave by a different exit from which you came in. Uh multiple ways, I would say. I would say you could uh leave by the sea or by the wizard's tower. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Really uh yeah. Or possibly the tunnels under the cemetery. <laughs> so I was wondering, could you leave out a rat tunnel? It yes, because says... they go off the edge of the map. So <laughs> could, it would certainly yeah. be a place you could expand. Yeah. I Even the rats leave out of them. Right. It, it says yeah. in there that you you can't uh, find your way out of them and you would just get lost. But I think I oh. think it's worth, uh, as, a, as a dungeon master, expanding on that and finding something that could go that way. Um, certainly uh that uh it does invite you to find um further depths into this and where xenopus met his end right so that could be a place to put that easily enough you would most definitely need a dwarf way to be able to forge out those tunnels <laughs> absolutely <laughs> you know i i know i've at least read portions of the sample dungeon before mm -hmm. I think my copy of Holmes might be missing it. Oh this no! Is all news to me. <laughs> it's really good. Yeah, like. Did you I'm get the Prince version? The, the half price books. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it was loose. It wasn't in yeah. box. It was a half book. <laughs> it's um, got a back cover though. Well, it so, should be in there. Do you have an illustration of sample floor plan on page forty-one? I do. That's it. That's the sample dungeon. Okay. It's Man. good. It's good. You'll like it. I, I promise you. Now, uh, Courtney pointed out something to me that was a little bit weird about the octopus. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, the octopus only gets six attacks. Why wouldn't the octopus get eight attacks <laughs> per melee round? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it has to stand on two <laughs> It was just interesting. Corny, if it attacks with all eight hands, how is it ever going to finish this Afghan? <laughs> I guess he was giving the players a break. Yeah. Just six attacks. It is kind of a strange yeah, number to land I don't think it. I ever noticed that before. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Maybe that's that something. <laughs> Maybe when they were playtesting it, they took an actual octopus and was like, they saw how many attacks it could feasibly get within a 10 second period. And it was always six. So they punched an octopus. Well, life. they got punched by an octopus. Oh. <laughs> Are you suggesting all of the money at early TSR went into octopus research and development? <laughs> they were making a lot of money really fast. So... That was probably not the dumbest thing they thought. 
Maybe the octopus was busy eating um, the fish from the pirates. That's a good point. Two hands, <laughs> two tentacles. Not two hands, two tentacles. So it suggests that the the pirates have a way of getting past the octopus, and I feel like that suggests the players would be able to as well if they learned that yeah, trick. Or thought uh, of it, yeah. Yeah. And I think also, you know, if I ran this, I think I would introduce the evil thaumaturge um, as a non-player character in Poor Town. Oh yeah. For introducing him later as a adversary in the dungeon. You know, I feel like there's this kind of role play element to it. It gives you this idea of this town and what this town is like, but it doesn't really have the town fleshed out as a place that you would game in. Uh, I could really see fleshing that out and having this thaumaturge involved in their day-to-day life to some extent. Um, it would be, it would be neat to have that villain in the dungeon that has a personal connection somehow. Yeah. I've thought about having him be part of like a town council. That also includes Lamunda's father. Mm. Um, another thing I thought about more recently is instead of having him attack immediately in the dungeon, instead trying to hire the players, because it says he's trying to take over the level. Mm-hmm. So um, he might hire them to help him get rid of some of the monsters on that level. Right. And maybe under like false pretenses, still have him be villainous. Yeah. yeah still have him kind of double cross them at some point, or maybe yes. uh, present himself as maybe too evil for the players to stomach. That's a exactly. cool idea. That's a cool idea. Cause normally when I played it, you know, it's just like, you know, players intrude into his room, you know, he and his henchmen like attack, you know, maybe he runs away up to his tower mm-hmm. and there's a battle up there. But, um, I was thinking the next time I run it, I might try to play that differently. So Zach, is there anything uh, about Holmes that we have not covered or maybe has not typically been covered? I know you've been uh, a couple times on programs to talk about Holmes basic, including uh, this program before. Is there anything that just has never been mentioned that you think merits mention? Okay. Yeah. I don't think that Derek Holmes gets credit for introducing the, Cthulhu mythos to Dungeons and Dragons. Most people that are longtime D&D players know about the um, original deities and demigods had the Cthulhu mythos in it mm-hmm. when it was first printed. And then after a few printings, they took that out, um, you know, possibly due to copyright um, entanglements with chaos, chaosium. Uh, but what most people don't know is that Holmes was actually wrote the original draft of material that was that eventually formed the basis of that mythos um after he had worked on the basic set he wrote the first draft of an article on the lovecraftian mythos um that then rob kuntz um did some editing on and then it was published in dragon magazine number 12 and when they went to work on deities and demigods they actually used that as the basis of the chapter there's some sentences that are almost the same in the two of them so I think that's one thing that he doesn't really get much credit for because when they actually published Deities and Demigods, they gave him a, like an acknowledgement for help, but he didn't get like an actual like author credit in there. Oh, huh. Okay. Which I think he should have. I wrote an article uh, that was published in a Cthulhu, uh, a new Cthulhu zine called Bait Al Azif that was just published a few months ago. Um, it's called the Clerical Cosmic Horror: The Brief Era of the as a Dungeons Dragons Pantheon because it was. 
that, you know, at that point it was presented as a pantheon. So you could presumably pick it uh, for your cleric to, to worship if you were crazy enough. Pretty much around the time that Call of Cthulhu was published is around the same time Deities and Demigods was, was first published. And then just a few years later, it was gone from D&D and they never really brought it back again. They have similar monsters in D&D, but they don't have the actual, you know, Lovecraft names of creatures and hmm. his deities. Well, um, we do have an email to read before we close up the podcast. And that email is from Lao Lu. And he writes, I was interested in some of the banter you guys had about modules when talking about X2 in episode 151. I have been all over the board on modules. Like many, I went through the module haters phase where I only played games I wrote. Then, in my adult life after kids, I have found that I prefer to play modules if I have the option. Like you guys were saying, I always have to get in there and muck around, making the thing more to my tastes, but I love having the maps and stats and stuff there as a skeleton to riff on. I also really have come to enjoy talking with other gamers with certain modules we have both experienced as a reference point of conversation. You know, the old, have you ever played Expedition to the Barrier Peaks conversation? There's something very unifying about those separate but shared experiences. The one thing I think is an interesting debate is how much is too much or too little detail for a published adventure. I was recently in the awkward position of running a D&D module I had not had a chance to read before, and it was way under-detailed. There were monsters in rooms with no rhyme or reason, no connection to the plot or effect on the surrounding map, important characters with no names, the presence of a huge band of goblins with no note on why they were there or what their goals were, and on and on. Yes, I can make things up on the spot, but without these details at least suggested, everything seems random, and random is not something worth paying for, in my opinion. So what about you guys? What level of details, or what types of things, make a module worthwhile or skippable in your minds? Thanks for the question, Lalu. Uh, I'm going to kick this off actually to Courtney to start, and I kind of want to get her perspective on since I know she plays um, mm-hmm. more than she DMs, of course. Uh, Courtney, have you ever had an experience he was kind of talking about where everything just seems kind of random? Like, it's like, why are there, why is there a goblin in this ice fortress? That doesn't make any sense. Or like, why are why there... Why is this octopus only attacking me six times? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I don't think that's something you would bring up if you were playing. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> I don't think I've ever had in a completely random situation where, yeah, like you're saying, like, like an ice character in a desert or never been that bizarre or random. But if I were to run a game, I would want lots of detail or I would want to have plenty of time to prepare in which to write out that detail so that I'm not trying on the spot of what's in this room, what's in that room. I would want to know ahead of time and be very prepared ahead of time. So I personally would not like a module that was very vague, at least not initially if I were a DM. Hmm. That's interesting. I'll, I'll have a rebuttal to that. So, real quick, just before we move on 
to another person. I know you, uh, so, hey, I know Carl's like your husband and everything, and you have right. to be nice to him, but like, <laughs> you can tell me the truth. No, no laughter. All right. Dang. Um, <laughs> what was the, I mean, what, what was the uh, expansion of that? Oh, like, oh, this is, you can tell me if Carl's bad at D&D. <laughs> Uh, no, but oh, I know. we lost her audio again. I can hear her. We can't oh, hear you, Courtney. <laughs> Goodness, I bet it was hilarious too. <laughs> I know because I know Courtney would bite onto that. Like, I think Carl cut her off. <laughs> <laughs> can you reconnect your plug-in or something, Courtney? Oh, there you go. Back. Uh, am I back? Am I? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I said I have to be nice to him. <laughs> 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 well, and I know you you play in a lot at, when you go to conventions. I'm guessing you're you're probably taking some time to get away from playing Carl in Carl's game. <laughs> Have you ever um, like uh, gone to just like a terrible convention game without naming names, of course? No, like so when we went to GaryCon, I played in quite a few games that were not DM by Carl, and um, I actually had great DMs. In, in all the games I played in, um, some of them were definitely different than Carl's style of DMing, but mm-hmm. that's fine. I, I still enjoyed them for various reasons. Obviously, we did recap and talked about a few of the games, um, but I am fortunate to be married to a good DM because how awful it would be. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, especially seeing how we didn't start playing RPGs until after we were married i mean whew, that could have been rough um but <laughs> luckily he's a great dm and I, I do enjoy playing those games and i don't necessarily have to say that but uh that's my honest opinion so and yeah. it helps uh, i want to kick it over to zach next yes what was the question all right it's it's a many fold uh, essentially um, the question is what do you um expect out of a module and what are your experiences with playing modules versus home brewing Oh, uh, definitely. If the if they're too wordy, it's just a chore to read it, and it's a chore to like process what they're what what is actually the important things in the room, mm-hmm. like when you're actually playing. Yeah, I I, I like one hundred percent agree. That was gonna be like my. So Courtney had mentioned when there's not enough detail, uh, and I think you and I are on the same page of like. Yeah, like when a module has too much detail and it's like, why does anyone need this? This is dumb. Like, just tell me that there are seven goblins in this room. Carl. Well, actually, Zach, anything else? So um, do you have any experiences, you know, where you've been at the old local FLGS and have shared those experiences with people? Oh, yeah. I the agree area you grew with up him in. about, like the, the part about talking to other people. I mean, yeah. I love hearing how other people have run the sample dungeon or keep on the borderlands because mm-hmm. I know those so well. It's it's you know it's always interesting to the other takes that people have had on them. It can give you ideas mm-hmm. for like the next mm-hmm. time you run it, just to hear how somebody else has played through it. Yeah, uh, Carl, what what have you? What are your opinions? <laughs> 
Um, very similar to Lao Luz. Uh, when I was a kid running Dungeons and Dragons, I didn't care to own a module. I didn't really, uh, we had uh, a couple of dungeon magazines and I would look through those, but for the most part, I was just making up my own stuff. Um, and it was very serialized. It was very uh, never-ending camping trip Dungeons and Dragons. Um, but I was not running modules or even saw the value in them because I felt like I had all of these ideas that I could pull from over and over again. Um, and in in nowadays, I really enjoy running modules and I really enjoy reading modules and just seeing what the ideas were uh, in the early days of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I think B2's a fantastic thing to look through and kind of see this. I, I really think B2 and um, modules like it are what I want from a module where it doesn't really provide you any type of narrative construct it only provides you with environments because what i like to do then is add my own narrative construct to these uh because i can use the environments within the narrative construct i create and i like uh creating narrative constructs more than i like creating environments yeah so you said everything that I was going to say. <laughs> you got almost verbatim. And I think the most enjoyable part of modules, and this is something I've discovered recently for myself, has been being like, oh, this is this is weird. Like, why? Why is this here? And looking at the skeletal framework of the module, of the environments that you're provided with and and the pieces and fitting those pieces together and really making it your own like i was doing that very heavily in the x2 game and i am gonna run that more but man i am super happy with a lot of the stuff i changed um to make you know to kind of give more of a narrative or a background with some stuff that doesn't make sense but i think it's more interesting to go all right well how can i how can i work these random bits together and come up with something coherent and everyone's interpretation of that is going to be unique but when you go to a game store and talk to someone else and you find out how they did it it's like oh well, next time i run it i can change it like that um well i'll use i'll use lamunda the lovely as an example yeah. So in a uh, more modern product or a more detailed product, they might give you her full backstory and this full history and how to play her and who she is. And within the sample dungeon, all you know is that she's, one, a pretty tough warrior. She's level two, presumably higher level than the party on the adventure. And uh, she's captured by pirates for whatever reason. And she has a nobleman in her family. She's the daughter of a lord. So that's all the information you get from her. Now, you can take that so many different directions. It gives you enough information to give you an idea, but you can turn that on its head or go X, Y, or Z direction with it. She could be a rival pirate. She could have this whole secret life. You know, uh, that that's the reason they captured her, and that's the reason she's with pirates in the first place. Um and I think you could assume that she is an adventurer and she is a warrior and her father, who's a lord, knows about it. Or maybe it's a secret. It just allows you all of these different directions to go that if it were more fleshed out, you would be locked into this box. Obviously, you can change it. You're not imprisoned by that. But um, without with the absence of that detail, it it 
it sparks the imagination. And I think that's the perfect level I want a module to be at is to give me enough detail to spark my imagination. Yeah, I, I love the closed ecosystem of a lot of um, like TSR era modules, especially like the B series. Maybe not so much the X series, uh, but just going, how do these pieces fit together? Like you're, you know, she's a, in your interpretation, she's a rival pirate. In my interpretation, when you gave me the setup, is that she's a hostage who's going to be ransomed back to the noble family. Well, right. Or right. maybe it's a prodigal son kind of thing where these pirates have captured her and are going to return her for a bounty that her father put on her for her re safe return. Like there are. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I, I don't know. I think we're in sync with this. <laughs> Great ideas. Um. If if you know Wizards of the Coast wrote that module, they'd give you every single detail about her life and her alignment, and it. <laughs> you know, it's interesting you mention that because the new coming mission adventure, Ghosts of Saltmarsh, they actually put the Tower of Xenopus into that adventure. Oh, really? It's going to be out next week, I think. Now, what they did is it's not a fully fleshed out adventure site; it's adventure hook. They just put it on the map and then there's like four paragraphs about it. They basically condense the sample dungeon hmm. down to some suggested ideas. Well, uh, it kind of going with Lao Lu's, uh, his email last night when I was buying my copy of into the borderlands at the game store, uh, the owner was like, Oh, Hey, if you're looking for the third in this series, I'm, I'm getting them when they release. And I was like, Oh, which one is it? He's like, ah, it's the he, he had to look it up, but it's it's expedition to the barrier peaks. It's like it's like the spaceship one. And I was like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, it is the spaceship yeah. one with laser gun. And we both had that like shorthand of this is what is in this module. Yeah, which that's is great. That's that's lost if everybody's just running their own adventures. Mm -hmm. I do think the other benefit of the module is you it. I think it takes infinitely less time to homebrew up all of these different customizations and modifications to something that's already a finished product than it does to write stuff whole cloth. Uh, and I'm, I'm in my thirties now and I don't have infinite time cause I have other hobbies that I like. So it was very enjoyable just over the course of a week, modify an entire module. Yeah. Or, or make a sandbox by taking bits and pieces from different. Adventures. Oh yeah, definitely. I think that's going to be our show for this week. Thank you again. Zach for being on the show. Uh, where can we find your blog? Oh, it's simple. It's Xenopus Archives at blogspot.com. All right. Again, I've been crispy, and unfortunately, the party passed their surprise roll with a five, so they found me out as I was going to attack them, and I've been killed, and they've taken all of my magical armor. And I uh, am Carl. I've been Lamunda, and I have been secretly a pirate this whole time. <laughs> I'm Courtney, and I'm a unicorn constantly feeding the black pudding to keep it from being angry. <laughs> and I'm Xenopus, and I've now been engulfed in green flame and destroyed. <laughs> no! <laughs> Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you so much for being Thanks on. Thanks for being on the show. It was my pleasure. Courtney, you want to say the line? Oh, yeah. Peace out, Cub Scout. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> awesome. Are you enjoying the show you're listening to right now? Great. 
Why not head over to patreon.com slash WGP and support that show for as little as dollar a month. Dollar a month goes a long way to helping support the network Wild Games Productions. Again, that's patreon.com slash WGP. Thank you. Do you like the Marvel comics and movies? Do you enjoy role-playing games? Why not check out the classic Phase Rip podcast, where they dedicate time to going over the rules and the fun of the Phase Rip system by TSR from the 80s. Marvel Superheroes at its finest. Listen in live, bi-weekly on YouTube.com slash TheEvilDM, or catch the audio cast at ClassicPhaseRip.com for all your Marvel superhero needs. Excelsior! So you like AD&D 2nd Edition but no podcast to listen to? Guess what? We got the cure right here. I got a fever. And the only prescription is... The Thaco's Hammer Podcast. You want me to put the hammer down? Join DM's Glenn, Brian, Corey, and full-on gamer as they discuss, debate, and review the world of 2nd Edition AD&D. Yes. Go here. Give me a gin. Yeah, that's that's DM Corey ordering drinks. Sorry, sorry, girlfriend's getting gin. Rules, modules, supplements, clones, everything 2E is fair game. Someone lied to you, and there's an opposed role, and oh, they won, so you believe the lie. I know, but I don't, because I, the player, know that they lied to me, but mm -hmm. you, the character, have to act like you take the lie. So listen into a podcast where number two is number one. The Thaco's Hammer Podcast, the best damn second edition ADD podcast ever. You'll find it on iTunes or at Thaco'sHammer.info. Leothward and Hilda are standing in the ruins of a once great tower. Its walls now crumbled, bricks strewn across the ground. There is an entryway leading down a stairwell. They are with a group of mercenaries that they have come to know as the Red Shields. They're led by Cooper, and also among their number is Jan, who uh, has been the drinking buddy of Leothwart and Hilda. And Brother Bowen, who appears to be a follower of the immortal Ringo. And Eric, who is young and excited to be here. Ugh, Eric. <laughs> that guy. Eric, lead the way. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I can go down there. I'll go down the stairs. And Cooper says, wait. I'll go first. Dwarf, elf, would one of you want to come with me? I could, uh, I could use the dark vision. I think I might have torches. I don't have any torches because I can see in the dark. No, I, I have torches, but I, right. I, uh, I don't want to light them just yet. If one of you can come with me, I'll go. Okay. So, uh, Hilda and Cooper uh, start walking down the stairs. It's really dark down here. The light uh, gets cut off pretty quickly from the small opening that you are uh, traversing down. And it suddenly gets very dark, and Cooper is now relying on Hilda to kind of uh, help him walk forward. Hilda, in the dark, you see a hallway, and that hallway goes forward outside of your dark vision, but um, you can see about 
halfway down how far you can see it splits into a northern quarter and a southern quarter so you're you're essentially going to be at a four-way intersection uh if you keep moving forward do i hear anything coming from any particular direction is everybody else right behind us and we're just in front or are we the only two down here Right now, the rest of the people are at the top of the stairs waiting to hear from you, and you do not hear anything. Okay. Um, I give them the signal to follow. Cacao. Okay. <laughs> Eric says, I heard it! Let's go! The sound of lyre music grows <laughs> stronger as we approach. <laughs> <laughs> Is it soft? music <laughs> yeah I mean it's you know <laughs> Ooh, er- I like this one er- Eric starts humming along <laughs> <laughs> I stop playing for a second and give him a dirty look Cooper Cooper goes keep it down keep it down I, I start strumming even softer no I mean stop I mean, quit. I mean, stop doing it. (laughs) No appreciation for art. (laughs) And then I put it away. (laughs) Are you actually playing? Yeah. (laughs) That's great. I thought you were throwing in sound bites. I was like, wow, he's really prepared. That's awesome, though. So that's a ukulele, right? <laughs> no, it's a mandolin. Oh, it's a mandolin. Okay, close yeah. enough. Close enough. I prefer, at this point of our adventure, that you play a little, like, uh, traveling music more. We're not... We're still exploring these dungeons. Yes, more campground traveling music and less dungeon murder music. Of course, for Kumbaya. <laughs> no, I mean, don't play music in dungeons. Play music at the campground. Oh. No, I mm. meant more like we're just going through, a, as far as we know, we're just going through a hallway right now. So I need like music as if we're just walking and not like, it got energetic, I guess, there. I don't think you understand how much danger we're in right now. Playing music oh. is a bad choice. Oh. Yan Yan says, "That's a good point. You should play uh, something scary." <laughs> <laughs> oh, good, good, creepy, creepy music. Okay, so for real, so I don't hear anything from either side. Uh, 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 so at this point, Cooper says, "Hilda, um, do you think it'd be okay to light a torch?" And as far as you can tell from what you can see, yeah, it'd be fine. I mean, there's nothing. There's nothing immediately like on the precipice of your vision that would like come running after you or anything. Uh, yeah, we could do that. Cooper looks back to Eric and he says, "Hey, light a torch." And Eric lights a torch, and he is standing in the middle uh, of you. And um, Crispy, where's Leothward? Is he going to be in the middle as well? Um, yeah, I was thinking probably middle or middle back. Okay, and that puts brother. How many ranks we have? Well, you're gonna have three. So, Just three. Uh, okay. So you're gonna be in the middle with Eric, and then brother Bowen and Jan will be in the back. <laughs> I think it's funny that Luthor gets to travel with Eric. <laughs> <laughs> so, there is a corridor 
going forward, uh, about halfway, about uh, 15 feet uh, from where you're standing. Uh, it goes both north and south in a four-way intersection. I, I say we keep going straight. Okay. You walk up to the intersection. You can look down both north and south uh, quarters, and they uh, both go out of your torchlight range. We should go left. Does Cooper know anything about this dungeon whatsoever? Any folk stories or... Um, I've never heard of Xenopus before. Xenopus is an evil wizard, a dark mage. Uh, there were sightings of dangerous magic and ghoulish creatures dancing around his tower before it was destroyed. I can only assume there will be ghoulish creatures and dangerous magic in this dungeon, but I imagine there will also be gold. I imagine there will also be some magic. That's all I know. Well, I vote we go straight ahead, but does anybody else have an opinion? I heard once, long ago, that you should always go to the left. To the left, you say? Mm-hmm. To the left? To the left? Yes. Everything we want is in the room to the left. In this dungeon, that's our stuff. Okay. I'm fine with left. If I claimed it, please don't touch. This must be some sort of elven lore, says Eric. Yes, you... <laughs> it's obvious that you must not know about me. He must not know about me. I don't. I've never met an elf. I've said that already. Eric, if you don't listen up, I get like real close to his face. I could have another you in a minute. Matter of fact, he'll be here in a minute. That seems fair. Now, to the left. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Everybody's fine with going to the left, which would be the southern quarter. You uh, traverse down that quarter about 60 feet. Then on the edge of your torchlight, you see that um, it does open up into a large chamber. As you approach the chamber, you see it is a 50-foot by 50-foot room. The door you're standing in uh, heads north, uh, but there is also an open archway that heads south. It is not uh, directly across from you. It is um, a little bit further east, um, uh, heading south. And uh, uh, inside of this room, there are four... You're not sure if they, they're doorways or inset bookshelves or what, because they are covered in cobwebs. Um, like, they're, obviously there's there's a way for cobwebs to be strewn over them. You don't know if they're just insets or if they are actually doors out of the room, uh, but they're absolutely covered in cobwebs. The room is covered with uh, just like a large layer of just undisturbed dust all over the floor, like an inch high of dust. Um, but uh, other than that, the room looks empty. Uh, so there is dust all over the floor and there are four cobweb covered areas on the wall two on your right and two on your left um and so the door that you're standing in is behind you the other door is in front of you but you have to cross the room to get to it i want to check out the cobweb cubby holes to the right of us okay um that that would be the closest one to you what do you want to check out? You you see cobwebs covering over 
something, whether it's a doorway out or a bookshelf or something you don't know. How do you want to approach it? I will. Hmm, I'm not going to touch the cobwebs, but I will take like the hilt of my sword and see if I can brush them away. Okay. So you um, have your great sword out and you slide it towards the cobwebs and push them uh, out of the way a little bit. Behind those cobwebs, you see uh, the grinning skull of a human skeleton. Under the cobwebs or beside the cobwebs? Like behind them. Like like um, like the cobwebs are covering a doorway and it's it's resting behind it in this niche. Okay, so it, it is a cubby then. Yes, that's what it appears to be, yes. There does not appear to be anything behind it other than stone wall and a skeleton. Is there anything uh, remarkable about the skeleton? No. <laughs> I'm going to wave Eric over to me to bring the light closer. Eric comes stands by you with his light. With the area illuminated more, can I make out any more details? It appears to be a unremarkable skeleton. Obviously, it had some purpose of being uh, placed on this wall like this, but that purpose is unknown at this time. Is it sitting on like a chair or a throne or like a stone it is cutout? standing. Still standing. It is standing as if it were able to just stand on its own right there behind the cobwebs. I'm going to punch the skeleton in the face. (laughs) Okay. So you, with your fist, rear back and punch at the skeleton. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a skull. You punch it. Like it stays intact? Yeah. Doesn't crumble to the ground. No, it's not. I mean, it's a skull. It doesn't fall off. No, it doesn't fall off. Is there anything strewn around the area? Is or is is it like fairly not like clean, but free Uh, of debris? No, it's dust. Cluttered. There's nothing in here except dust and cobwebs, and the dust is covering the floor. Skeleton doesn't do anything. No, you punch it. It's it's it is. I mean, it is. Something is going like there's no reason this skeleton should be able to stand on its own in this archway period. Like it's not like held up by ropes or like on a stand. It is literally standing there. So uh, some magic is at work to some extent here. And it's not like the spider webs holding it up. Right. I'm going to call back to the rest of the team that mm-hmm. nobody move forward. Okay. I'm going to go over to the next cubby hole and wave away the mm. actually I'm gonna grab the torch mm-hmm. from Eric and burn the cobwebs away. On the one you're at? On the the one beside it, the other. Okay, the so you're you're going further into the room? Oh, I thought they were right next to each other. No, I and I want to make that clear. That you're you're gonna be walking almost all the way across the room to do that. Well then I don't want to do that. What I want to do instead is uh, so I don't grab the torch. I'm I'm Yell to the team, nobody go any further. Okay. And then I'm going to grab the skeleton by, like, its, like, collarbones, and I'm going to try to drag it out in the middle of the floor. All right. You are unable to. Uh, I will call over, um, I'll call over over Brother Bowen and tell him to walk where I walked. Okay. He does. And, and then this, I'm gonna, all, like, I mean, you can't even see the floor. There's so much dust. But as well, I imagine my as footprints your, as your right, 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 exactly what I'm saying. Like you, he can see exactly what steps you took yeah. and he takes those same steps. And where you've both stepped now, you can see the gray stone floor underneath it. 
Okay. Uh, I'm going to just gesticulate to the skeleton. And then I'll hold up a hand, like a, a finger like that, and wait, there's more. And I'm going to punch the skeleton again. I'm going to try to, like, give it a right hook so the head would definitely come off. Okay. So are you, uh, are you doing some wrestling moves here? Is that. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm throwing a right hook. Like, I'm throwing a punch that would, like, knock a skeleton if it was just a regular skeleton. Knock the head off. Okay, it it doesn't just to demonstrate like, hey, looky here. Okay, so you're showing Brother Bowen like, magics be magicin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you can't move it. You can't pull it, push it forward. Uh, you do punch it. Uh, it it you hit it with your hand, and it does not react kinetically at all. And then I'm gonna go. Now I haven't been in very many dungeons before, but everyone. Uh, Please ready your weapons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, they all pull their weapons up. And then they once I know everyone's ready, I'm going to also draw my sword. Mm-hmm. I'm going to then walk further into the room. Okay. Um, right. Can I? Yeah. I would like to check to see if I notice any difference in the stonework. It's, it's hard to tell with all the dust around. So, I mean, like, the stone on the walls, you can kind of see for the most part, but there's so much dust on the floor, you you can't really see very well because of the dust. Is this, like, metallic particles, or is this, like, your standard house dust? It looks like any dust you've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. It looks looks like like the dust you would see on a ceiling fan in uh, someone's house. House. Someone else's, not ours, not our house. Maybe, uh, but <laughs> yeah, I mean that kind of just layered up nastiness. So we see four skeletons behind webs. One that's been punched a few times, and a whole bunch of dust on the floor. And yeah, and you can see where the footprints have traversed between where Crispy and then Eric and then Brother Bowen have all walked into the room. You can see the gray stone underneath their footprints, but that's all you see currently. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to move over to the next cubby like on this right-hand wall. Do we have any way to clear out the dust? I mean, I know we don't want to like dust one spot at a time, but hmm. clear this dust out enough to see if there's anything obvious, I guess. I feel like just going one square at a time is pretty... I mean, I guess we could tap with our 10-foot pole in front of us. No, uh, you can clear out the dust even if you just use, like, a large sack and kind of push away the dust in front of you or whatever, you know, just kind of using it like you would, like, a towel. So if you want to if you want to move the dust, I, I, I'm not going to stop you from doing that. I mean, I guess I feel like... Unless we're just going to gamble and take a few steps at a time, then Mm -hmm. it makes more sense to clear out the dust a little bit. How does Leah Thward feel about that? Well, I was just like, I was trying to illustrate to everyone, like, hey, uh, these skeletons, some shenanigans are going to happen. Right. Right. That's definitely going to happen. So do you want to clear out the dust instead? No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have my axe ready. Okay, so you're you're saying don't clear the gut dust, just walk forward. Clear the dust off like the floor. Yeah, this is like a huge room, though, isn't it? You said it's fifty by fifty. Yeah, it it would it would uh, you would I mean, you would have to like, clear as you go. Right. I, I mean, I guess the mechanism mechanism is not going to be that obvious, but I guess I feel like it's a dwarf. 
I should notice a difference in the stonework. If there's a mechanism to cause these skeletons to come to life. I mean, we can gamble. I always like a good fight. I just figured it was all magic stuff. Like, maybe there's a sigil on the floor, but... It's up to you. Crispy Leothward can walk across the room to the other area, or you can move the dust around and see if that informs your decision. So I don't have anything on me except I, I have a I have armor, weapon, and uh, that's it. I have, I have some rope and my backpack. Well, I mean, somebody I'm, has a large sack or something they could use. I mean, it's up to you. You can move the dust if you want. You don't have to. Does anyone in the party have a ten foot pole? Um, yeah, uh, Jan has a ten foot pole. I mean, I guess they could, it wouldn't hurt to take the ten foot pole and like sweep in front of me. Okay. Everybody cool with that? I yeah. think that's a better idea than just. Okay, so uh, Jan throws a leather sack on the on the on his ten foot pole. And he uh, puts it on the floor and starts starts mopping the floor, essentially. Dust mop. Mm-hmm. Improvised dust mop where you're about to walk. And he mops a little bit of the floor and you see gray stone. And you take a step and he mops a little bit of the floor and you see gray stone. Everything looks normal, Hilda. Looks like normal stonework. And you take a step and he mops a little bit more and you see red stonework. Mm. Is it the actual stone itself or is it like writing like no, it, it is the stone itself, as if it were a pattern that you've not fully uncovered. Okay, let's um, let's try to sweep ahead of us as okay. far as we can. All right, he he mops and dust mops a little bit more, and you see uh, where the red stonework is. It eventually stops and uh, uh, squares off, and there is gray stonework to its side. Mm, to its side, right. Are we able to, like, clear a path to lead to? Yes. He dust mops the entire floor, and you uh, clear a path to the other side of the room while finding a path through that does not lead to any redstone, but only graystone. Is that that leading towards that arch in the opposite side? Yep. It leads to the southern doorway. Okay. Well, then I guess we take that path. All right. And then I'll have everyone else take that path as well. All right. They all follow along the uncovered gray stone, uh, uh, avoiding the red stone, and you make it through to the other side. And we will stop here and pick back up on the next adventure. Okay. What? what? <laughs> so join us next time on the Save or Die actual play as Leah Thward and Hilda delve deeper into the dungeons of Xenopus. The Savor Die Podcast is a production of Wild Games Production, and it's produced for entertainment purposes only. The music used in the intro and outro is by Tripod and used with permission. Be sure to visit the Savor Die crew at saverdie.info for more information. If you'd like to support this podcast, please go to patreon.com slash WGP.